have your Bibles with you this morning, we are going to be uh, continuing in our uh, Psalm 23 series. So you can turn over to Psalm 23. It's like smack dab almost right in the middle of the Bible. Uh, also, if you want to be a real go-getter this morning, you can turn over to Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump over there in a little while too. So if you want to stick a bookmark in there, you'll have that ready to go. But um, so we are going to be, uh, like I said, we're going to be continuing to dig in today into our Psalm 23 series that Joe launched for us uh, several weeks back. And we're going to be kind of looking again at, at the passage of scripture that's pretty well known, right? So I think if, if you've grown up in church, for sure you, you are familiar with Psalm 23. If you've, if you've spent any time among Christians, you're familiar with Psalm 23. If you've ever stepped foot in a Christian bookstore, I'm sure you're familiar with Psalm 23. Uh, But even if you, that's not your background, right? So even if you're coming from a secular background, you're probably familiar with Psalm 23. Joe mentioned to us last time how Psalm 23 has just been popularized by both uh, believers and non-believers alike, right? I mean, he mentioned to us how it's, it's popular for for athletes, and it's popular in even in movies, and, and even rappers have used appropriated parts of Psalm 23 in some of their famous rap songs, right? So Psalm 23 is one of these things where it's just something that we've, we've been exposed to, haven't we? Uh, it's, it's on coffee cups, it's on, it's on t-shirts, it's on artwork, it's, it's all over the place. And so if you're like me, you probably have been thinking as we've dug into this series a little bit, like how can we learn something from such a well-worn piece of scripture, right? I mean, I remember when we talked about doing a Psalm 23 sermon series, I, I was excited about it because it-, it was interesting, but I was also thinking like, golly, like what, are we- what else are we gonna tell people about Psalm 23 that they haven't already heard or that they, they haven't already formed ideas about? I think Joe did a really good job getting us started last time as he started peeling back some of the the superficial layers of Psalm 23, right? So I think a lot of what we know about Psalm 23, a lot of what's been taught about Psalm 23, a lot of what's been appropriated by our culture about Psalm 23 is really kind of just the outside, right? The superficial layer. And Joe started peeling that away for us last time so that we could see the real deep beauty of this psalm. He showed us that, that the offerings of the psalm are not, uh, as we often uh, like to believe, given to everyone, right? Like he talked about that last time, that, D, that, that David says the Lord is my shepherd, right? So that the promises of Psalm 23, the, the five Ps that we saw there, the provision, the peace, protection, prosperity, and presence that we see in Psalm 23 is not meant to be promises that are made to everybody. Rather, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. There's a personal relationship there, and Joe tied that into our belief in Christ, our faith in Christ, and those that have been reconciled to Christ are those who receive the promises of Psalm 23. He tied Psalm 23 into Psalm 22, right? We talked about how Psalm 23 follows Psalm 22, and if you're not familiar with Psalm 22, if you missed the last sermon, or if you're just not familiar with what he was talking about, Psalm 22 is a psalm that is rooted in deep messianic 
prophecies, right? It, it talks about things that Jesus would ultimately accomplish. It talks about him being crucified for his flock. It talks about all of these things that we ultimately see fulfilled in Jesus. It's a presentation in the Old Testament of the gospel that we place our hope in now today. So the more time I've spent studying and reflecting upon the psalm, the more I've been able to see that deep beauty that, that we find within it, the more I've been able to, to kind of start to see, even for myself, just that there's so much more uh, that we can mine, so many more truths that we can mine from the psalm that when we really start to dig into it. So I think that this time will be fruitful for us overall. It, it offers us hope in, in times of trouble, right? And we're going to talk about today the green pastures and the still waters. It offers us hope in times of trouble, though, because those green pastures and still waters, they exist even in the, the valley of the shadow of death, right? When the mountains in the valley, when the shadow of the mountains makes dark the path, we still have hope that the green pastures and the still waters await us. Joe mentioned last time that that for all of our familiarity with this passage, it can be difficult for us to understand it in terms of its structure as we attempt to kind of engage with it. So if you'll indulge with me for a minute, I want to review a little bit of that, and I also want to actually add a little bit to what Joe, the foundation that Joe laid last time. See, I suspect as we continue to study through this psalm that understanding kind of this, this foundational background or, or how the psalm is structured will help us as we start to dig into it. It'll help us understand the whole. It'll expand our understanding. So while we plan to study this psalm verse by verse, verse at a time, I think being able to see the whole picture helps us understand the sum of the parts. I'm going to read, for it, read it for us in its entirety, and then I'm going to give us a little bit of background, and then we'll focus in on verse 2, which is where we're going to be today. Psalm 23, a psalm of David, says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think this psalm can actually be split up, and we look at it as a whole, it can be split up in several different ways. I think the first way that we can split the, the psalm up is thematically, right? So we actually see two different themes in this psalm. So the one that we all know, the one that we're all familiar with is the theme of the shepherd. Joe talked about that a lot last time. We see this theme of the shepherd in the early part of Psalm 23. If I mention Psalm 23 to you, you likely immediately see the shepherd imagery it's it's just the way that we've come to know that psalm even our background our our uh, our, our work art that we did here for the uh, for the psalm is it is, is has a, a shepherd theme right we we chose the shepherd theme that's how people understand it and we see that in the first four verses but then we see a clear change at verse five right the, the psalm the theme of the psalm shifts at verse five and it moves away from the shepherd theme and it moves to the theme of a feast or a banquet right so it wouldn't be it would be odd for us to to expect a, a, a shepherd to prepare a feast for his sheep right 
That clearly something changed at verse 5. The theme shifts away from the shepherd theme and shifts towards a, a feast theme. And I don't want to go too deep down that rabbit trail because we're going to get to those passages eventually, but it's just something I want you to see and be familiar with as you study through the psalm. A second way that we can break it up is by is according to the pronouns that we see. Right? There's, there's several different pronouns that we see in the psalm. In verses 1 through 3, the pronoun that we see is the, is the pronoun he, right? He makes me lie down. He leads me. This is a third-person view where David is speaking about God. He's talking to us about God. But then notice in verses 4 and 5 how the pronoun switches to you. You are with me. Your rod and your staff uh, comfort me. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. Now we see David's focus shift to the second person, where he's talking directly to God. And then finally in verse 6, we see the personal pronouns, I and me. This is David talking in the first person, reflecting about his relationship directly with God, looking introspectively about, about the ways that God has, has impacted and influenced and worked in his life and how the promises that God has made are applied to his life and how he looks expectantly toward this future hope where he'll dwell in the presence of God forever. One last way that we can understand the, the psalm is in terms of the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. So I think when we look at the psalm initially, we're kind of meant to see it from the, we're supposed to see ourselves as the sheep, right? I think that's the way that David intended for us to see it. And Joe talked to us about that last time, about how oftentimes, almost exclusively in scripture, when, which the, the shepherd motif is popular in scripture, it's used throughout the scriptures, and almost exclusively when it's talking and using the shepherd um, when it's talking about shepherds, it's talking about us as the sheep. We are the sheep. We are these wayward, helpless, pitiful sheep. And we must rightly see ourselves this way. I believe this is the perspective that David intends for us here. And this can be offensive to us, can it? Like when, when we think, when, we, when we're told we should think of ourselves this way, it can be offensive to us, can it? Right? That we're wayward and, and pitiful, Right? That, we, that we require so much care and attention that we can't take care of ourselves. Joe talked last time to us about how sheep can't protect themselves. They can't provide for themselves. They can't even, if, they, if no one is there to cut, to cut their, their hair, they can fall over and they can't even get up. They're just so weak and pitiful. And this is the way that we're called to see ourselves, and this can be offensive to us because Sin makes us want to believe that we are more than just these lowly, pitiful sheep, doesn't it? I think it was Joe that mentioned this, but it may have been something I saw somewhere else. But uh, someone, somewhere, maybe it was Joe, uh, said that, that sin convinces the sheep that we're wolves, right? It convinces lowly sheep that they're wolves, that they're apex predators, right? That they can hunt for themselves and care for themselves and protect themselves. That they don't need anyone but themselves. But make no mistake, my dear friends, we are the sheep. Many, many, many live as sheep led to the slaughter by sin. And few get to enter into the sheepfold of Christ. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes it in chapter 53. So if I, I mentioned sticking your finger in there. If you have your finger in there, turn over to Isaiah 53. I want us to look at this together. 
I'll read it to you, but I want you to be able to follow along. Isaiah in chapter 53 says, All we like sheep have, been, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on, what's the word there? Us, them, no, it's, it's him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? That's a question. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. See, what we see here in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 23 and passages like this in Scripture is that the fate of the sheep is tied directly to the shepherd. This is what is true of the shepherd is true of the sheep. So do we follow a good shepherd, one that's described in passages like this, in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 23, do we follow a good shepherd, one who cares for his sheep, one who protects his sheep, one who lays down his life for his sheep, a shepherd who gives of himself to the utmost for his sheep, or are we led astray by a bad shepherd, the shepherd of sin and self? Are we led astray on this path that leads to our own destruction? See, all the sheep are being led to the slaughter, right? All the sheep are being led to the slaughter. But Isaiah tells us that it, it's, it's the good shepherd, right? It's Jesus that goes to the slaughter on our behalf. The good shepherd lays down his life for his flock. So now that we've spent a little bit of time looking at the psalm as a whole, I want to dig in today where we're going to spend most of our time. The primary focus is verse 2 of Psalm 23. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You see, after introducing the Lord, Yahweh, anytime you see Lord in all capitals in your Bible, that's the, the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. Um, as, 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 uh, after uh, David has introduced Yahweh as the good shepherd who provides for all of our needs, not our wants. Joe touched on that last time, taught us actually exclusively about that, right? It's not what we want, but rather what we need. And if God hasn't provided it for us, it wasn't it was because we didn't need it, even though we may have thought we wanted it. David now is going to expand on his, his teaching over God's provision. See, he begins here with the most basic of all needs for living creatures, right? Food and water, right? He leads me beside green pastures and still waters. He's providing food and water, the most basic of our needs. See, we see in Psalm 23, not just that God is our creator, right? He doesn't just create us and then place us here in, on, on this planet and, and just kind of say, well, I hope for the best for you, right? No, he is not just our creator, but he is also our sustainer. He provides for us. At our most basic level, he provides for all that we need. He is the creator and the sustainer. 
This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray, right? To ask for our daily bread because God provides for us. See, the primary function of a shepherd is to maintain his flock as he moves them from feeding grounds to feeding grounds, right? That's why uh, shepherds had to exist, right? Why, why didn't they just take the sheep and put them in a pen, right? That would be the easy way to do it. Just put a fence around them, right? And then there's nothing to, nothing to worry about. But sheep are grazing animals, so they need to have pastures to graze upon. And if, if they were just left, if the flock was just left in one area, they would just eat until there was nothing left, and then there would be nothing for them to eat. So the shepherds had to continually be moving the flock from place to place. They knew, because they were good shepherds, they knew that if they allowed the sheep to eat everything down to the dirt, that there would be no food for them. So they had to constantly be moving the flock to give the ground time to regrow. And then by the time they got back around to where they had started, there would be fresh grass again. So the shepherds had to constantly be moving their flock from place to place. And they needed to be maintaining the flock and keeping them, the flock together and protecting them. They lived in the pastures with the flock. They stayed with the flock. They spent all of their time with the flock. Additionally, we see here that, that God doesn't just provide water for, for the sheep, but he provides still waters. And that's significant because anybody that's a shepherd, which none of us are, but I learned this, that that it's easier for animals to drink out of still waters rather than quick-moving waters. So not only does God provide for our, our needs, but he provides exactly what we need and the way that we need it. But while what is initially apparent in this psalm is good and true, that God does provide for our most basic needs, I think that if we stop there, if we just stop at that level, then we really miss uh, um, what the psalm is really trying to teach us, right? Because David says, the Lord is my shepherd. There's that deep personal relationship that, that Joe taught us about last time. But God provides for all of our needs. Whether he is our shepherd or not, he provides for all of our needs. I think that the promise of Psalm 23 is meant, despite what many would have us, the, the promises of Psalm 23 uh, uh, this general promise is meant for all people, but despite what we would want to believe, that, that um, the overall promises of Psalm 23, as we learned last time, are not meant for all people, right? So God is the sustainer of all. We see this in Colossians 1, 16 through 17. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if we stop there, right, then I think we miss the point, because why does David need to say the Lord is my shepherd if he only means to talk about how God provides for our most basic needs? See, the scriptures make it clear that God extends common grace to all mankind. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So he's talking about those that oppose God. And then he says this, he says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, 
and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Even those who don't have a personal relationship with him, he provides for their needs. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We know that passage, right? And so it's talking here about Jesus. The framework that Jesus uses for God's provision for all people is, is within the context of teaching over how we are to love those that don't love us. So God loves those, even those that don't love him, by providing for our most basic needs. So while that's true and proper to see God's common grace here in Psalm 23, providing for our most basic needs, I think we're intended to see more than just that. See, the good shepherd here isn't merely providing for David's physical sustenance. Rather, he is also providing for his spiritual well-being. He's providing spiritual nourishment as well. Not to get ahead of myself, but we see this explicitly in verse 3 where he says, He restores my soul. See, how does God provide additionally for his flock specifically? That's what we're meant to see here. How does, how does God provide specifically for David, for those who are in his flock? What green pastures and still waters does he lead us to? I think if we spend time thinking about that and dwelling on it, we can name many, can't we? But I think the most important one for us to see is that God provides for us, he provides green pastures and still waters for us through his word. The scriptures are the green pastures and the still waters that he leads us to for the nourishment and rest of our weary souls. Now again, I need to clarify something here, right? Because there can be some confusion when we talk about the scriptures. We must recognize that God's word in the scriptures is for all people and it can be profitable for all people. It's given to us as part of his common grace to all men. But there's also a very real sense in which it is veiled to those who are not united to God in Christ. There's, there's, just, there's a veil that exists there where we just can't see clearly what God has, is teaching and expressing in his word. And we see this taught time and time again in the scriptures. Isaiah 6.10 says, Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And in John chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6.10. He says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Isaiah 44, 18 says, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. And finally, 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world, lowercase g, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, God has not just given us these vague, empty promises, 
but his word was made manifest to us through Christ, through this living word who became flesh and who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. It's through our relationship with him that we are able to see clearly, through his spirit that is working in us and through us that we're able to see clearly and be spiritually nourished by God's word. Apart from him, it is veiled. We cannot see it. It becomes folly to us. It's God's spirit, the shepherd, and he alone that leads us to the green pastures of new life in Christ and sustains us in that new life. Salvation through Christ, I think, is the ultimate sense in which God leads us to the green pastures and to the still waters. It's in salvation that we ultimately reach the green pastures and still waters that he intends for us. So I think that the undercurrent of Psalm 23 is undoubtedly a celebration of the salvation that, that David knows through the Lord. He's celebrating all that, he, all that God has done for him, all that God does for him, the salvation that he knows. Right? That's why we need to see this connection between Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. It's why Joe taught us that. It's the, the salvation, the gospel, the hope of salvation is the red thread that binds the two together. Listen again while I read Psalm 23 in light of that truth. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If that's not a celebration of the hope of the gospel, then I don't know what is. But I think when we, when we start to, to dig into these realities, right, when we see this, this dichotomy of God's grace to, to some and not others, uh, grace to all in some ways but not to others, then it immediately creates questions for us, doesn't it? Questions that we want answered. And the question that we always come to is why? Why does this hope uniquely belong to the shepherd's sheep? Isn't that always the question that we encounter when we encounter God's sovereignty in action? You see, I think we much prefer the idea of God's sovereignty rather than actually, um, like when it's this ethereal and abstract concept, right? Like we like the idea of God being sovereign over the, over the entire universe. We like the idea that God is in control over the chaos. We like this idea and this thought of God's sovereignty. We like the idea of God being in control in our lives as long as the way that he exercises that control doesn't interfere and, and, and step on our sensibilities, right? It doesn't offend our sensibilities. I don't want to be overly harsh and critical here. I get it. I, I really, really do understand. This is difficult because it affects real-life people, right? It isn't nameless faces, but rather it's friends, it's family members, co-workers, neighbors. It's people that we know. And it has tangible consequences if we're to believe what the Bible teaches. 
We get reassurance in the scriptures about God's wisdom and his goodness. We're given evidence that we can trust him, but we struggle. We struggle to trust him. We become skeptical and we doubt because we've been, we like to think of God as us. That's Psalm 50, 21. See, we've been hurt by people we thought we could trust, haven't we? Like everyone in this room, I'm sure at some point, has trusted someone and had that trust betrayed and, and, and been hurt and wounded. And so we're skeptical. We wonder, like, is God like us? Can we really trust him? Can we really trust in his promises? Can we really trust that he's good? Because we've trusted people who have hurt us. And so we, pro we project that weakness upon God. And then our faith wavers and we're prone to doubt. Is he really good? And by extension then, are his promises and the way he exercises his power and authority, is it good? That's the question that we have to answer. But God ministers to us in this struggle. You see, Romans chapter 9 is perhaps the most direct and explicit treatment of God's sovereignty over salvation anywhere in the scriptures. It's the, the Calvinist's uh, uh, motto, right? We know it well. We're quick to point others to it as a proof text when we talk about God's sovereignty. I myself have been guilty in this area as well. Just, just look at Romans chapter 9. It'll all make sense, right? That's what we like to say. But even in Romans chapter 9, where Paul is teaching uh, so deeply and explicitly about this reality, he struggles. He's struggling with the weight of it. Listen to how he writes in the opening part of the chapter as he wrestles within himself over God's sovereignty, particularly in salvation. You see, he himself has been reconciled through Christ and has been called to take the gospel to the Gentiles, but in his heart he still has this deep concern for those that he loves, his fellow Jews. He wrestles with the why me, why these, and the why not those questions that we all struggle with. Listen to it in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So after sharing his heart and his struggles with God and with his audience, he then proceeds in great humility and grace and with, with expert precision to lay out the, God's plan for salvation and his sovereignty in it. It's a, a theological tour de force of teaching on the matter that leaves no shadow of a doubt for us. If you've never read through Romans chapter 9 and you, and you find yourself at times, I'm sure that you do because we all do, struggling with how God exercises his sovereignty and, and, and why he saves some of us and not all of us and why he chose to save you and not others, right? If you're struggling with those questions, I would encourage you to read chapter 9 of Romans prayerfully with a heart that, that is, is like Paul's struggling to know, struggling to understand. You see, we don't always get an answer to our questions that satisfies our curiosities, but we do get reassurance that should satisfy our souls. So the scriptures for those who are in Christ are a means of God's special grace and loving kindness towards his flock. 
We also can find God's nourishment and provision in the, the green pastures of the community of faith as we live life together with other believers. This is why participation in, in the life of the local church is so important for us as believers. This is part of God's means of grace to us, where he, he, he pours into our lives through other believers as we do life together. It's vitally important for us. We come together for corporate worship, for the proclamation of the word, for communion, and for fellowship so that we can receive this life-giving food for our souls. And it's not meant to just be one hour every week on a Sunday morning when we come together, but rather we are called to live life together, to invest in one another, to be present in one another's lives. That's why we so often are encouraging uh, people here at The Journey to get involved in, in serving, and to get involved in journey groups, and just to, to that, so that you're not just, just here on Sunday mornings hearing us teach. Uh, hopefully this is, is edifying and helpful for you when we teach, but it, there's got to be more than that, right? We need other believers in our lives. We're not designed to live on an island. We're, not, we're called to live within the flock, not a life of isolation. Lastly, I think that we are intended to see beyond what is written and also see the picture that is painted by the words here. This should be easy for us because when it comes to these verses, uh, that's historically the overwhelming focus, isn't it? The green pastures and still waters is a picture of peace and rest in our mind's eyes, isn't it? It's no wonder then that the that the piece of, of art that you see hanging in your local Christian bookstore, it, it conveys that message, the idea of peace, doesn't it? Right? You'll have Fabio Jesus with his feathered hair sitting by the, in the green pastures with the sheep around him and the still waters and the rays of light are, are coming through, right? That, that's how artists want us to see this peace. I'm being facetious here, of course, but the language of verse 2 does communicate this peacefulness to us. The message of this verse is that God intends to provide for not just our sustenance, but to provide for peace and rest in him. We see here that we are made to lie down in green pastures and led beside still waters. God ushers us into this rest. He brings us to this place of restfulness where we can rest in him. We can let down our guard in him. Right? The sheep, like any prey, are most vulnerable when they're feeding, right? Because they're not they're not focused. So they're they're most vulnerable when they're feeding, when they're when they're resting, they're most vulnerable. This is when the shepherd is protecting them, when they're relying on him for protection. So God ushers us into this rest, but we're only given a glimpse of this rest on this side of eternity because verse 4 awaits us, doesn't it? The valley of the shadow of death awaits each and every one of us. The peace of God, a peace that surpasses all understanding, is granted to us by grace to give us rest even amidst the, the trials and chaos of life. Even in the valley, we are meant to, to, to enter into this rest. Because the good shepherd is leading us, we can enter into a sanctuary from the storms and experience this peace. There's much more that I think could be said today, but I think this is a good place for us to stop, right? I think 
that this is a good time for us to stop as we transition into a time of communion. Because we are invited in communion to, to come to the Lord's table. He ushers us into his table to feed our souls, to give us, uh, uh, to enter into these green pastures and still waters, to nourish our souls and provide for our spiritual well-being as we come to the table and partake of communion together. So we're going to, I'm going to have the worship team's going to come back up and they're going to lead us in, in, uh, in worship. We're going to take communion together. Cody's going to come and read scripture to us and we're going to celebrate communion together. So if you are a believer, if you've placed your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, if the promises of Psalm 23 are for you, we invite you to come to the table and join us and partake in communion together. If that's not where you're at today, that's okay. Like that's, that's, we're just happy that you're here. We're happy that, that God has brought you here, that he has, has brought you here today to, to hear the truth of his word. We pray that, that we can minister to your soul. If you have questions, we'd love to, to answer them for you or, or, t- or attempt to. We'd love to, to minister to you. We're just happy you're here, but we're not here to judge you um, and, and take stock of who is and isn't taking communion, but rather this is just something that God's people do when they gather together and fellowship together uh, in him. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll enter into a time of communion. Lord, we thank you for uh, Psalm 23. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you minister to us, even in our questions and our doubts. Lord, even when we wrestle with these big questions where there's just no way for us to have an answer, even when in your goodness and wisdom you, you, you decide not to give us all the answers, Lord. Um, for our good. Uh, Even in those circumstances, Lord, you minister to our soul because you know how we long to to have our curiosities satiated. We we long to have all of the answers, Lord. I pray that as we continue to study through Psalm 23, it would be a source of great peace for us, Lord, that we might know you as our shepherd, that we might be able to take the truths and promises and hope of of this passage and apply them to our lives because we know you, because we have trusted in you, because we have um, placed our hope in the gospel that you present before, that, that precedes Psalm 23, the gospel that precedes this hope. We just pray that, that you would minister to our souls in this. We pray that you would nourish our souls in this. And we just ask all of these things in your most beautiful name. Amen.